This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'm speaking with Woman Stands Shining, Pat McCabe. And that what the world needed is the world needed my forgiveness today over those matters versus 500 years ago. We needed it more today. That's what Spirit told me. Because when I could open up my heart of forgiveness, which bathes creation in light, I forego revenge. I even forego neutrality and I go all the way to forgiveness. Woman stands shining. Pat McCabe is a Diné grandmother, activist, artist, and international speaker. Her primary work is proposing to the five-fingered ones that paradigm is a choice and pointing to indigenous cultures as examples that we have evidence that human beings can participate in paradigms in which we can become beings capable of causing all life to thrive. Well, Pat, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I've been following your work for quite a while, and it's a real honor to be sharing some time with you today. And so I'd like to just begin by asking you if you desire to introduce yourself in any way that you would like to open this. Sure. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so I'll just say greetings to all who come upon this encounter. <laughs> And uh, I'll say, um, greetings to you. Uh, so I come from Dene, Dene Nation, as my daughter says, people know us incorrectly as Navajo. Um, so I'm greeting you in our traditional way uh, by telling you my clans. And um, I was also adopted into the Lakota spiritual way of life, which, uh, so I've been on that road and that's been such a blessing. And I would say the, the main informing spiritual element in my world for the last 28 years or so. And I'm coming to you today from beautiful Northern New Mexico, uh, Taos, my house in Taos up here in the land of the uh, Red Willow people, the Taos Pueblo. So uh, just very happy to find myself here with you today. Hmm. Thank you so much for grounding us in this moment and where you are. And hmm, yeah, I've heard you speak about how this moment in time, biologically speaking, the plan on earth is very much to continue to live. And I'd just like to start here because I think for so many of us who are in movements for environmental justice or climate justice, we find ourselves entangled in narratives that focus on extinction, 
loss, a lack of time, and just a tremendous amount of misanthropy. But looking at the world around us shows us that our more-than-human kin are giving birth all of the time. They're not ceasing their lineage of their own volition. So I wonder if you could clarify the inherent truth that life wants to exist. It is this current paradigm that does not. Well, I had the deep honor of having a conversation with Joanna Macy recently. (laughs) And um, we were talking about, um, I guess, a film that's coming out um, that's really supposed to be very hard hitting with with the facts about climate change. And... Anyway, she, she some of her work was was being included, and and she was just feeling tender about it. And so I think I've said this in in different ways at different times, but sort of the way it kind of is coming out for me at the moment is to say that you know, I often say that modern world paradigm is very intellectual, intellectually driven. I mean, we're we're very very much taught to rely almost exclusively on intellect. And so I say, you know, what the intellect, you know, we, we, we do need intellect. I'm not trying to propose that there's no, no use for intellect, but I think we're way over-reliant on it. And what I say is that the intellect is, what the intellect is especially good at is making the airtight case for something or against something. Um, I mean, if you, if you set two people down and say, give them any kind of inspiration to <laughs> Say, you know, uh, even though you've never thought about this before, I want you to take this position and you over here, you take the opposite position. Boy, they could probably go at it all day and all night, you know, um, because that's what the intellect loves to do and and knows how to do. And so if we're only being centered as a human uh, being, only in intellect, then, you know, we we make the airtight case for things. And right now... um, there's uh, a huge faction of us that wants to make the airtight case for doom. <laughs> and I know that the, the impulse for such films as, as uh, whatever the one was that's coming out, I don't, I don't know, there's probably several coming out. You know, the, the idea is that if we can impress deeply upon the people enough that, you know, doom is certain unless, unless we do X, Y, and Z, you know, it's supposed to, it's supposed to be an inspiration of sorts. And I, it's not that I disagree with that completely, but my own experience, and I'm going to say that as an Indigenous woman, as a woman who, you know, along my journey, I started out uh, being raised to, to be very intellect-centered. You know, the plan was for me to go to Ivy League schools and to hopefully have some fame and fortune in that way (laughs) before this life was over but I wasn't uh, my heart and my spirit were not going to go along with that plan I was not even though I was a great student uh, let the record show um, I uh, my heart and my spirit were not up to that that life and that way of looking at life and I was suffering very greatly and so I started out in that in that realm and when I was about 27, 28 years old, I got called into my very first indigenous ceremony. It was kind of a, maybe a late start for, for me, some might say, but um, you know, my parents and my grandparents were taken into the Dutch Christian Reform Missionary boarding schools 
And so in those places, they were not allowed to speak our language or practice any of our traditions or culture. Um, and so by the time I came along, that was, that was very absent in my immediate family. And um, so it's only been a little bit later in life that I've come back to this, well, I'll call my, my great homecoming. And I say that that's my greatest gift to the world is, is describing that journey, because I really do feel like humanity is, is on that exact, like that exact same journey of a return to earth and a return to, well, maybe not a return, but an inclusion of, 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 a, of a knowing of how to be human that is beyond this modern world paradigm, outside of this modern world paradigm. Indigenous peoples have been, you know, really putting forth their, their, their own paradigm, their own worldview, their own value system um, against uh, all the forces of the modern world paradigm. But, um, you know, they're seeking something outside of modern world paradigm. And I feel like all of this intensive search on the part of social justice folks and environmentalists and, and and all, they're looking for something outside of this current paradigm as well. So in that we are aligned. But I guess what I want to say is that I have found opening up what I'll call a broad spectrum of ways of knowing that, that all of my spiritual practice has, has, has afforded me and allowed me to experience. And what I have come to know and what my elders have told me is that the intellect is the least reliable way of knowing anything, <laughs> you know, and, and I, and I guess I'll, I'll add here right away that, you know, the, the proof is in the pudding, so to speak, in that, you know, I say if, if sustainability is the, is the highest and most sought after technology on the planet, who should we be talking to? We should be talking to those peoples who've known how to live in one place over an extended period of time, say a thousand years or 5,000 years or 10,000 years or 20,000 years in relative health, harmony and happiness. And we call these people indigenous peoples. So their science is sound. Their, their social technologies are sound. This whole continent was filled with thousands of different cultures with unintelligible languages, different cosmologies different understanding of the divine, so to speak. And, um, and yet they coexisted. They coexisted here kind of a remarkable way, certainly relative to what our social technologies are able to give us in modern world paradigm. So, you know, what I say about it is that our intellect alone way is, it has never been the way to have sustainability. You know, is it an accident that all these peoples who have such a broad spectrum of ways of knowing, their way of knowing includes ceremony, their way of knowing includes the song and the dance, their way of knowing includes um, seeking vision and seeking input from the larger community, the larger community of life, and also the spiritual community. You know, it was, it was through opening all of those modalities that a human being has, and, and I'm going to say every human being has them. The question is, have they been cultivated? Have they been, have they been pointed out to us? But indigenous peoples, you know, I'm going to say that having a broad spectrum of ways of knowing and sustainability go hand in hand for a human being. So it's not that I discount or dismiss the science entirely. I'm just saying that, that I don't believe that that can be the whole story. And part of the way I say that is, uh, you know, try having a romance with intellect only <laughs> and see how far you get. 
and see how enjoyable it is. And that's really kind of what we're what we've been brought into in modern world paradigm is proposing that you know that we can have this incredible, deep, powerful relationship with this exquisite earth and all these exquisite beings that surround us here, uh, the you know beyond human. And that we are to do this without the romance, that we're to do this with intellect only. And um, I suspect that there are many other possibilities if we were to open up together in exploring what it would mean to have, to expand our spectrum uh, of ways of knowing at this time together. And so I'm, I'm gonna stand for what the people stand for the people the nations that i've been brought into culturally born into or 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 called for you know and and that's what we always say we do this so that the people can live the reason i'm speaking with you here on this interview is i do this so that the people can live we want to live with all of our relations in a good way and so that's what we say with all of our endeavors um placing life at the center ideally and so i think we are still that. That's something that we're finding in common is we, we do want to live and we do want to live with all our relations in a good way, um, no matter what culture or background we come from. And so perhaps now we're coming to a convergence of understanding that was not possible until now. Mm. Oh, thank you so much, Pat. That was really comforting to hear and I do see so many humans in the sustainability movement. It feels kind of like running around in a cage and I can see people wanting so badly to intellectually find the answer, so to speak, but we feel so far from it in those spaces, <laughs> um, even with all the ideas and the um, analyses. And it, it just feels like we're going to be running around in a circle forever under this um, thought process. And, you know, in talking about paradigms as choices we get to make, I've heard you raise the question of who would we be in another paradigm? And this has landed very deeply in me as I also think about the many people who are lost and suffering in this current paradigm. Those who are deeply grappling with addiction, mental illness, and loneliness. And I wonder who they would get to be. And so your question is so powerful because it encourages us to get excited about choosing a different paradigm while also extending grace to those who are deeply misfitted for this current one. So how do you see a thriving life paradigm reinstilling the honor of being a human? Hmm. Well, I think that's a gigantic proposition. <laughs> and I think I'm pretty sure I'm the one who proposed it in just those words. So uh, here I am caught, hmm. caught out in the open, but uh <laughs> But I guess, first of all, what I'll say is, you know, for myself, where I start getting very battered by this time is when I start trying to take the whole thing on myself. <laughs> uh, when I start wanting to 
attend to all the environmental issues and all the issues of mental mental health issues and anguish of the young people and all of the economics and um, even what's happening with the water in my own home here in Taos, New Mexico. And uh, when I start getting into that mode that wants to attend to all of it, um, I get beat up right away and I get uh, diminished. And so I want to say that um, I have this image of me uh, before I was born, you know, in the spirit world. And I'm like tugging on spirit's sleeve and saying, put me in coach, put me in. I, I, I know I could do it. I know I could do something here. <laughs> Just put me in. I, 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 I want to go in, you know, and spirit finally saying, all right, here you go. You get to go in. And um, so, so one, I, you know, as I have that image for myself, I have it for everybody I meet. And I think, wow, just think about uh, choosing to come in right now, choosing to come and walk this earth right now as human being. You know, and I, and I say this to the young people that I, that I encounter as I say, man, I just have so much respect for you right off the bat, just that you're here, <laughs> that, you, that you're coming in right now. And, and I have total faith, as I do for myself, that I came here for purpose. There's something for me to do here. And perhaps it's only that only I can do, or perhaps I am a part of uh, some kind of constellation that is that is destined to come together. Lately, it's been feeling like that. And I offer my peace, and and we are greater than the sum of our parts. And so I I have to stay focused that way in what really deeply in what is mine to do. Otherwise, I I do get completely run over and battered by 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 the situation. So so what I am equipped to do here is to like I said, you know, I, I is to use this incredible privilege. I mean my people's history is harrowing. You know, the United States government uh ordered every male member of my people to turn themselves in or be captured or murdered uh in the mid 1800s and um and we we barely survived that. We were we were walked hundreds of miles to a concentration camp in the southern part of the state. So, the fact that I am here, and that and that I was put into East Coast boarding school, and I lived on Stanford campus when my father was getting his PhD there. You know, I I've, I've thought a lot about how meticulous Spirit has been with my education. And my education has had very little to do with the schools I was a part of, actually. Um, I mean, it gives me the mannerisms and the vocabulary and the language to be able to be heard by those who, you know, who are also embedded in those institutions um, and were given uh, that as their platform uh, and, or being their education. But, but I'm going to argue for every single one of us that there has been like the real school running along side by side with that. And that has to do with all of the experiences, the families we were born into, the people, the ethnicities we were born into, the gender we were born into, um, all of that, you know, because as I look at my own world, I, I just see that I have been meticulously, meticulously prepared for the role I am to play. And a large part of that role is doing exactly what I'm doing right here, right now, which is 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 describing my journey, 
from being a modern world paradigm human to a human that is uh, more or less outside of that at this point and observing. I'm observing and I'm describing that journey. So um, I don't know that I can say what the whole picture would be like of the thriving life paradigm. I feel like there have been groups of humans who have been operating from an ethic. You know, this is, this is the way I've been thinking about it lately that, you know, when I look at the sacred hoop of life, so maybe some people have seen the medicine wheel, this, this circle. And we say that every single member of all living things gets to have a seat on that hoop, including human beings. We're not the whole hoop. We get to have a seat on the hoop. <laughs> and, um, and that every, every single member is really called on to uphold its part of that sacred hoop of life. And when any member does not uphold that part, then the integrity of the hoop begins to fail. And I, and I do believe that's what we're seeing. I, I do believe that earth is suffering because humanity has forgotten to place life at the center of every single one of its endeavors. Um, other things have come before that and we are experiencing the consequences of that, which is why I'm sure, you know, my people are very, very clear and say with every endeavor, we do this so the people can live so that we never lose sight of, of what's actually the plan around here. The plan on earth is life. Clearly everything is doing one thing. It's making more life, making more life. She's always trying to find the way to push life up and out. Um, and so the amazing thing about this, about this circle of life, well, there's so many amazing things about it, but the one that I've been thinking about lately is that every single other member apart from humanity, every single other member on that hoop knows, you know, just by their very existence, just by their very being, their way of being, the fruit of their seed um, that every generation going back as far as you want to go and forward, <laughs> I think as far as we want to go to every single being their the way they live their life contributes to supports upholds every other member on that sacred hoop of life. I mean, that's incredible. Like we, we, we look at that prospect as a human being right now and it's completely overwhelming and baffling to us. How would we do such a thing? We ask ourselves. But I want to point out that we have all these other beautiful relatives. I say elders, the trees, the stones, the waters, the birds. I had a pair of hawks uh, doing their mating uh, ritual right over my head a couple of days ago outside of my house. It was just astonishing. But just to think that every single one of them, the way they live, supports every other form of life. And so I have to believe that we also have that capacity. I don't believe we could be placed here. I don't believe we could be given a seat on that sacred hoop of life if we didn't have that ability somehow, somewhere, some way. So right now, as much as you know, you're saying we want to know, of course we want to know. That's, that's the intellect's way, right? It's not happy if it can't know. And if it can't really know, it starts to make something up. But, but we, we don't know right now. And, and that's um, an uncomfortable place. But what I have learned is that when we can fall in front of that great mystery door with true humility, with true willingness, with true 
love for this life and for all the life around us, for the next generation's lives, you know, because that is a place that we find in our ceremonies. When we are able to meet that place with true humility and willingness, astonishing vistas open when that door swings open and shows us things that we never could have conceived of before. So perhaps it's actually a necessary place for us to be, to encounter and to really be uh, confronted deeply by that mystery at this time. I'd like to move into a conversation to look at how gender behaves in this paradigm. And I've heard you acknowledge that this is a very difficult conversation to have right now, but it's also desperately needed. And so often when we think, you know, or when we talk about gender, we talk about the harm that the binary does, with many pointing out how the gender binary itself is a colonial construct. So I'm curious to enter into this topic with you in a way that holds the necessity of the non-binary while also exploring how gender behaves differently in different paradigms and how gender has been held in very sacred ways as well. So how can we have gendered counterparts without the oppressive nature of a binary? So um, in, in this power over paradigm in which might makes right uh, men are going to dominate, is what I see, because it's really about brute force. It's really about you know overcoming a- another. And so, this is to me why men are dominant in this paradigm and have been dominant in in this on the earth for some time now, uh, by and large. And so we associate that power and the way it is used that overcoming, that overpowering of others with masculinity. And, the, and there is truth in that. There's, there's no question about that. But again, as, as you say, I ask myself, who would men be if they were not in a paradigm that required of them to overcome others in order to have what they need and in order to be that provider for the life bringers, the children and the elders? Who, who would they be then? And, and so then I feel like I also have to ask, so those who appear female, do not identify as female, they are then also held in a certain position within that paradigm. And for me, I feel like it's very hard for us to take a look at gender without fully acknowledging the extent 
of the paradigm, that power over way, and how anybody, whatever gender, whatever race, you know, is going to behave when you have people that are going to overpower you and make it and make it next to impossible for you to to get what you need to live. The same dynamics are going to arise, and they are arising. We're seeing it arising uh, politically. We're seeing it arise racially. We're seeing it uh, arise um, in gender. You know that that's been going on for for however you know forever for not forever, but for a very long time, thousands of years. And so, um, so I think that that's the first place that I always want to start in having any conversation about gender, is how can we really know. So I will agree that that the current gender constructs are a human construct. Well, they're they're a product of this paradigm. And so I don't think I can even really know who I am as female outside of that paradigm. And that's what, you know, I think that's what you're quoting from me is that the spirit said to me, you think you know what masculine is, but you don't. And you think you know what feminine is, but you don't. All you know is how those two energetics behave in a power over paradigm. But if you were to plug them into a different paradigm, they would behave in a completely different way. So I know, I notice that when I am engaged in my cultural, spiritual practices, gender is held in very particular ways. And, and I will say that, that the patriarchal way, the power over paradigm way, in which men are dominant has definitely infiltrated into indigenous culture. It's quite convoluted there, I find. But so it's it's not that there's perfection going on there, but I do notice and I can feel how the ceremonies call upon gender in very different ways than we're accustomed to in modern world paradigm. And so I can just say for myself as someone who identifies as female and woman and who also menstruates, who also menstruated, I should say, I don't menstruate anymore. Um, there was a very particular spiritual capacity that I had that was based upon my biology. And there, I don't know how there can be a, a human construct around that capacity. That, um, in other words, I feel like that was as natural of a female being as I've ever known how to be, was to be going into um, the practice of, of dismantling, you know, acknowledging that I'm dismantling the holy altar of life once a month, and that I have the opportunity to offer that gift to the Mother Earth. And that when I do that, she responds. She responds to me so deeply and actually blesses me in very particular ways as the female of our kind and, and also gives me vision and instruction about how to be on this earth at this time. And so based on that ex very personal experience, I extrapolate quite a bit and I ask myself, so, so if that is what my biology can afford me to contribute, you know, I, Going back to what we were talking about earlier, I, I've had it with genius. <laughs> I've had it with brilliant ideas. I want to. I want to be led. I want to be called by life itself to action, because I don't think we know what we're doing. All we can keep doing is operating out of the same 
you know, the same modern world paradigm. It's very hard for us to to know, even as, even as an indigenous person with a full on living example of how one could be a human being in a completely different way, it's still really difficult. And then many people don't have that privilege, don't have that opportunity to participate in a paradigm other than the modern world paradigm. So it's, it's, quite, it's quite challenging, but, but I'll say that, you know, um, for me to be able to, to hear in that way, to be able to receive instruction, is so profound. And so then it makes me ask myself then, so what, what do all the other genders hold for us? What do, what does the whole spectrum of gender hold for us? The biology of the two spirit, the biology of, of the men and, and the masculine. Um, I think that there is a huge amount of resource for understanding how to be human in such a way that we can cause all other life to thrive by being able to, instead of seeing gender only through this, through the eyes of this terrible, terrible power play going on, to begin to ask, you know, how, what is my perfect design for thriving life that I am meant to fulfill here? And how does my gender, whatever gender I'm claiming, how does that afford me that possibility to do that? Mm. Thank you, Pat, for going there with us. And yeah, I'm thinking in terms of the wounds of gender in this paradigm, I think about the shame and trauma that colonization has inflicted upon men both here and in Europe and how that trauma in Europe begets what unfolds here in indigenous communities. And I know that this is a topic that doesn't always land softly because under this paradigm, it can be so much to ask women and non-binary folks to step into this approach of understanding men's participation in violence and abuse or their silence in movements for safety and physical return of those who have gone missing or been harmed by men. But as difficult as it is, it's worthy of noting the cycle of trauma that arises. And I know that this is a question that perhaps really needs to be addressed to the men in our lives. But as someone who has traced what the witch hunts of Europe set in motion I wonder if I could ask you about the importance of factoring this part of the story in terms of healing the masculine and feminine and how it's also embedded into the trauma that exists between European settlers and indigenous people in settler colonial countries. Hmm. Where to begin? Um, I'm going to begin by saying that at one point, um, my spirit guides told me that I, as the mother of the children that I've birthed, I am their first medicine woman. And that I can orient my people to life by orienting the babies and the toddlers and the young children to 
life, to what makes life, to the principles of life, to the original instruction. And that I actually guide the destinies of the people in that role of being this first medicine woman to the people. And that it's not until they get to the place of the coming of age. So, you know, as they're, as they're heading into puberty, at that point, you know, I've already been with them 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years and, and been able to give them instruction and orientation. And so at that point, it's correct for me to perhaps turn them over to the medicine men of the community for initiation. Um, and, and I imagine there are, there are women who can also do those initiations, of course, too. But, but it, it was explained to me in that way. And, that, and, that, and it was also just added that Women's Nation has been tricked into giving up that capacity by turning our children over at very young ages to kind of random strangers, honestly. And that has to do with economics and such. But what I was, but it was pointed out to me that that, that that is a possibility for who I could be as the, as the mother, the mother, the mothering being to the future generations. So first of all, I'm going to say that these men who are doing harm They were raised by mothers who had been harmed also. They didn't just arise out of nowhere. And that's a, that's a really hard thought for me, but I have four sons. <laughs> and uh, it's really something to watch how they, how they view women, how they, how they view other humans. And to see, you know, what what stirs violence in them, what stirs harshness and hard-heartedness in them. It's very, very humbling to watch my own sons and to see how how well I've done in terms of this question of of bringing violent men into the world. It makes me want to weep sitting here thinking about it such a overwhelming uh, prospect and endeavor to raise sons. But I, I love my sons and I am very proud of my sons. I'm very proud of their stand for life. I'm very proud of their stand for earth. All of them, all of them would go to great lengths and have gone to great lengths to protect earth when my sons returned from Standing Rock, they had a new thing, a, a new way about them. And that way was, you know, anytime that they were going to take action, environmental stance, and take action here in our community, they felt like they needed to have the presence, the blessing, the guidance, the prayer of an elder woman. That was new. <laughs> So I really give congratulations to the women of Standing Rock for instilling in these young warriors, you know, and of all the groups of humans, the, they are some of the most intimidating to me, the young warrior men. Intimidating in the sense that 
you know, I, I, I don't ever want to get heavy handed. I feel like if I had to get heavy handed there, well, you know, I would. And in that sense, I'm not intimidated, but, but I don't ever want it to come to that with them. I want it, I want, I want something, another kind of relationship with them. And so I've been thinking a lot about this at this time, um, as I come into my elder womanhood ship, as I say, you know, I think in our old societies, pre-colonization, you know, we, we went to war at times with different, our different tribes surrounding us for different reasons. And I, I believe that it was most likely the elder women who had the final say about when we go to war as, as being, you know, I call myself holy earth surface walker, life bringer, life bearer. And I stand with the full authority of the mother earth with me behind me as me and I am always have the I'm always in the position and have the authority to speak on behalf of life in every situation so that's how I claim my gender and and so to have these these young men asking you know as they watch the world be torn asunder to have them pause and stop and ask, what do, what do our elder women have to say about our actions? That is really some powerful medicine woman work <laughs> that was done there. So I acknowledge that. And I, and I asked myself, how do I know how to give that guidance to these young warrior men? I need that that is a piece of training that I have missed in this life between these two paradigms. But I but I want to know the answer. And actually that's one of the conversations that Joanna Macy and I were having is how do the elder women reclaim that role to be a guide, to be a voice, to be um, a help and, and potentially to be that final permission. How, what do I need to do to really know how to do that with these young warrior men? So I, I don't think I've ever answered this question in this way before, but I, it's coming out this way today. And, and I guess what I'm trying to say here is um, we women have an enormous influence in this world, not through the power over paradigm, but through the actual real life authority, which is this mother earth. She is the final authority. There's no bigger authority than her. You know, we're not living on Mars. We're not living on Jupiter. We're living on Earth. And it's going to be her way or not at all. We think we're going to bend her way to our will. We're not. Impossible. Cannot. It's not going to happen. So we have one choice, and that is to align with her way, her thriving life way. And, uh, and we're being confronted with that very deeply right now. And so, you know, to stand with that authority is, is huge. There is no greater authority that I could stand with and that could be moving through me. So at this point, um, you know, I've, I've said it in other ways and other talks. You can go look for those other, other explanations around this or other, other discourse. But here today, I'm just going to say that I have to accept my responsibility as, a, as the female of our kind, of the five-fingered ones, 
standing on this earth today with the full authority of Mother Earth and speak on behalf of life. And, and those young men who are here to defend life, I need to find my way to speak to them too. And I have to be a woman, fair or unfair, I have to be a woman who can raise a young boy into a man who knows how to honor life, which means they also know how to honor women's nation and elders and children and other men. I'm responsible for that too. I just was taken by chills um, hearing you. Thank you for your truth and vulnerability and your personal experiences. Yeah, it's very moving and Well, I'd like to transition our conversation to discuss the topic of consent. And there are so many facets we could cover, but something I've really been sitting with is how Western ideology and capitalism raise us to understand that in our life, in order to obtain our desires, we must never take no for an answer. <laughs> you know, we are never taught to respect limitations or how to take no for an answer gracefully. So do you think true consent is even possible in this paradigm? Hmm. Is it possible in this paradigm? I'm not so sure it is. <laughs> I mean if indeed it is a power over paradigm in which one must overcome another in order to have what you need to live, that pretty much demands that you're going to overcome someone else, whether they give you consent or not. And by and large, they're probably not going to give you consent, <laughs> right? So that's where the violence of this paradigm is deeply rooted you know, uh, I think about what it, when, I, when I try to feel into what would it be like for me to be a human being that causes all other life to thrive? My very presence does. One, it might be hard for us to imagine. So I'll take us on a little side, side note here, which is that my daughter, some of you may know, Lila June Johnston, um, is getting her PhD in um, indigenous land management practices, traditional land management practices. And um, she, she told me this really fabulous thing that I just love, which is that, you know, they're, they're, they're doing, taking these core samples out of the earth, which honestly for indigenous people is a little bit problematic to be just gouging holes into the earth just cause we want to know something. But, um, but but they have been taken and and so what we what they're looking for is the deeper down you go into the earth the farther back in time you go because we have these these sediment sedimentary layers of of not only rock but life and and actually human activity shows up and so when you go back you know a very long ways say even here in the south southeastern uh, united states for instance you'll find that the 
plant life, the diversity of life here was, was, might be very minimal, like three or four major species around. And then we find that as human beings arrive on the scene, suddenly the biodiversity just explodes. And so we have a way of doing a kind of agriculture, I guess we'll say, because there's an intention to cause things to fruit and flower such that we will be able to benefit from them in a, in a somewhat predictable way. So that will be my definition of agriculture in this instance, right? And so, but the way that we did it wasn't about changing the whole landscape. It wasn't about making curves into straight lines. It was another, another way. And so we had, we did have controlled burns. Um, we had, anyway, we had a huge number of, of, of possibilities for managing land. And so lands were managed for, you know, tens and hundreds of square miles by a people. And so while they want to call us hunter-gatherers, there was actually quite a bit more going on there. <laughs> and science, modern science is just being, beginning to catch up with that. And part of the reason it's been hard to see is because you can't actually see it on the landscape. Because the idea is to, is to not leave a mark, to not leave a monument to yourself, to not show I was here and I did this. It was to be in that very deep, harmony with this symphony of life. And so, you know, when I think about that, and I think, wow, so we actually are, that's what gives me faith in this new prayer that I have. We, we actually could cause places to thrive, to explode in biodiversity in a way that was not harmful, in a way that was welcome. And so it's, it's given me this, this new perspective on us as a species, because I think right now I say we have low self-esteem as a species, that we're that everything we touch we destroy. Well, that hasn't always been the case, and it really hasn't been even all that long ago, relative to the age of Earth and actually the age of human presence on Earth, which science hasn't quite caught up with yet either. But but they keep making discoveries that keep pushing that time further and further back, don't they? Um, we're saying hundreds of thousands of years, and so when I see that and I think, wow, we we have that capacity. But what was that? What was at the root of it? And I'm going to say what was at the root of it is this understanding of the sovereignty of all beings that when we acknowledge every being again as having not only the right to be there but as actually a necessary part for my own well-being and the well-being of every other life form i mean that's what every every plant is <laughs> is it's it's there supporting all the rest of the life so so yes, I have to think very carefully about what I'm going to do if I'm going to interfere with its trajectory of what it has to offer. And so to me, this idea of consent, having consensual relationships. So, so here we are bound um, by, by a deep, the deep law of consent, of the acknowledgement of the sovereignty of all beings, and we're all required to eat each other. I mean, it's the craziest setup, right? <laughs> like we all have to eat somebody. Uh, whether it's a carrot or a, a, a venison or whatever it's going to be, right? Um, we're going to interrupt a life. So that means that we have to come into some kind of place of consensus and consent. We have to have a consensual relationship. So this is why we make offerings when we're going to take plants, plants for medicine. We ask permission. Where, who wants to come? Who, who really needs to stay? 
and we make sure that we take only one out of every three or four, you know, so that because because those beings have to continue on in order for everything to be well in a region, right? So consent is inherent to this place that we live in. So your question is, do I think consent can exist in that paradigm, in modern world paradigm? I'm going to say, I don't think it can. But I do know that we do have to come into a place of consent and consensual relationship with this creation that we have been placed in, if we want to continue on. Thank you for sharing your personal experience. And yeah, I'm thinking about how in Western narratives around environmentalism and climate change, you know, they fix it on humans as these great destroyers, which we've been discussing in this conversation. And I think many of us have a hard time challenging that notion because we know that the behavior of some is indeed driving many kin to their extinction. But I've also been reminded by many leaders that change is inevitable and the universe is always in flux. So I'm wondering, how do you balance our responsibility to uphold the integrity of the circle of life as we know it while also revering transformation and change, even when it appears in the form of destruction? Mm. Well, I think what helps me hold that is culturally, we say that we have already been through several worlds. <laughs> so sometimes you might hear indigenous people talk about the, the fourth world or the fifth world or the sixth world or the fifth sun or such like that. And so we're talking about this very, very long history that I alluded to earlier, hundreds of thousands of years of humanity, being human presence here. And, and there have been rises and falls with it. We've, we've lost worlds. You know, my clan grandfather says that the reason we lost the last world, which was with the flood, was because men and women believed they could live separate from each other. So some cultures even say, we know, we know how we lost our worlds and had to begin again. And then we had, um, you know, some benevolent uh, relatives, you know, for us, we say it was the dragonfly that led us through the hollow reed, through the water to be able to come to the upper world again and begin again. So, so you know, those stories is that everybody likes to call myths as though, I don't know, I'm not sure what that word means anymore. <laughs> But it implies to me that it's not it's not real. It's not a true quote unquote story. It's um, it's a some kind of moral teaching or a flight of fancy. But I'm going to say not so. And so I think, for me, again, I have to go back to what is what did I come here for? What is my my reason for being here now? And what what can I do? And you know, I went through a period that I know many people I encounter go go through and may, might still be going through, and certainly young people are thinking it over that I encounter, which is, you know, is it too late? <laughs> is it too late? And what's the point? Or whatever like that. And then I feel like the way that that got sort of resolved for me is to say, you know, I I feel that my work is either going to help with this fantastic wake up that we all hope will somehow happen 
in the midst of all of our dogmas and and hoarding and etc. All the many addictions we have to ways of life that that destroy life. Um, but we nevertheless hold out that there's going to be this wake up. So either that will happen, and my work will contribute to that, or um, my work. I, I feel like some of the work I get called to do is to, so for instance, when I was called to do the work around the witch hunts in Europe, and that was named an archetypal wounding of humanity, to realign our course there, to retell the, the truth of, this, of the matter and the stories of, about what that really was and what really happened there and how that altered the course of humanity, to really spend the time there and to come to the understanding and to be willing to be instructed and even torn asunder and reassembled, which is pretty much what happened to me there. And then to be able to tell the story in a new way, they said it will automatically change your trajectory into the future. And so I, I trust that. I believe that. I believe that is what is happened at the time when we did the ceremony and is still unfolding now. Um, but I feel like, uh, that that reconciling was was almost um, a moral realignment, and my sense is that that level of healing and realignment plays out along the line of time, even if we end up losing this world and only some of us get to begin again. Uh, that 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 bit of work somehow sets us up to be in a better place than we would have been had that work not been done. So um, that's probably as literal as I've ever been. I've ever spoken about that, but but uh, but that is how I feel about it. So 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 our forgivenesses, our reconciliations, our acknowledgments of of traumas that we have inflicted upon each other all those are so important. They're so important. I don't think we can begin to understand how important they are. And, and I was shown during the time of doing the ceremonies in Europe around the witch hunts that, you know, my job is to hold the faith. My job is to hold the light, perhaps over hundreds of years. And the prayers that were made by the women and men and children that were suffering during the so-called witch hunts they're being answered today, <laughs> some of them. So what is that, 300, 400 years later? And I'm supposed to hold the faith through all of that. That's what I was told. And that what the world needed is the world needed my forgiveness today over those matters versus 500 years ago. We needed it more today, that's what Spirit told me. Because when I could open up my heart of forgiveness, which bathes creation in light. I forgo revenge. I even forgo neutrality and I go all the way to forgiveness. That's a blessing for the world. And Spirit said, well, you know what? We needed that blessing for this world right now. And so it gives a, a really different meaning to me about that phrase, the meek shall inherit the earth. So in this strange roundabout riddly kind of way that Spirit has, those who have suffered the most have the greatest potential to bless and to fortify the world and our possibilities for a future now more than 
more than maybe anyone else. struggling with forgiveness and what you just shared was really powerful. In a post titled Native on Native Studies, you write, quote, I was given a deep caution by my spirit helpers. They said to me that it was crucial to be cautious about making a study of ourselves as indigenous peoples, that we, by doing this, we could endanger our own understanding of who we are and how we are. In the same way that the Academy tried to make our life through their studies of our culture logical, linear, and intellectual, we, by participating in this academic methodology, we ourselves might reduce our way of life into the same two-dimensional understanding, end quote. <laughs> and I think this continues to happen in environmental spheres through the fetitization of indigenous knowledge. But the other side of this is that the only people who have a successful record of living in relative harmony with the earth are, of course, indigenous people, which we spoke about earlier. And so I have this question swirling for all of those who have a vested interest in sustainability around how to best support rekindling all of the knowledge that has been stripped from so many Indigenous people in so many different ways? Well, I feel that, you know, this, this land back movement taking place in the United States in uh, maybe an unprecedented way and by that, what do we mean? We mean um, returning lands that were traditionally belonged to indigenous peoples for to be back under their care again. And so that's happening with gifts of land in some instances. Uh, sometimes uh, funds are gifted to the indigenous peoples in order to be able to purchase lands. Um, so it's coming back in, in different ways. And I actually, <laughs> to my surprise, and being called to participate in something like that. And um, 
And so I think that this is a, a very powerful way and, and a pretty daunting prospect, honestly, um, because our lives have become quite complicated, meaning indigenous peoples. So we have, we have members of certainly my tribe all over the board from PhDs to traditional medicine singers to, I don't know, just everybody doing lots of different things in lots of different ways. So for a land to be returned to quote my people, there's lots of different ideas about, about what that could be used for. Maybe it's going to be used to reenact our old lifestyles, or maybe it's a way to get a jump on um, some kind of, you know, really lucrative deal. You know, um, it's hard to say what would happen in, in some instances um, with, well, I've used my own Diné tribe as an example. I don't, I don't really know what would happen if certain lands were returned to us at this point which ideology would win out at this point. But I, I feel that when we raise that possibility, that there is this possibility of, you know, because we, it's, it's hard for modern world to understand what it means to be so closely tied to a, a very specific location for thousands of years. It's almost beyond our imagining. It's almost beyond my imagining. But to have that kind of relationship to truly be a symbiotic in a symbiotic relationship with place where you are causing, you know, in, a, in, a, in an ongoing endless cycling of benefit, co-benefit, that's the engine of sustainability that we have known, an example we can point to. So can that be recreated? Can, can we continue on and do that? So when we're not able to be in the places that we had that relationship with, in many instances, we can't really truly be the full nature of our people, of our culture. You know, I say the Mother Earth, uh, you know, culture isn't a, a human con construct. Culture is the Mother Earth expressing herself as human being in any given place. So to get that level of relationship going is going to take a lot. And I think Indigenous peoples can do this. I think it's I think we still hold enough of our ceremonies. We could say it's literally in our blood and our DNA. You know, my blood and my DNA is built for desert, <laughs> high desert. I, I don't do well in tropical humidity. I mean, I enjoy it for short periods, but, I, but it's, it's not that easy for me to thrive there. I mean, it's literally in my DNA to be in this part of the earth, the Southwest of what we now call the United States. And so to help these indigenous peoples begin to make those relationships again. Sometimes the land that's being returned might have to do with our initiation processes. Maybe we haven't really been able to hold our initiations as deeply as we once did. And maybe by returning that land and allowing us that possibility, you know, we can we can recreate those those really profound relationships with Earth. And that, you know, what I want to point out is, yes, I know that some of my relatives feel that uh, my Euro descent relatives feel like they really need that part that says, yes, I am doing this because of what my ancestors did to your people. And so, you know, I, I acknowledge that it is a form of, of justice and, and restoration and conceivably reconciliation. But I also want us to consider that it's going even beyond that which is to say that when we 
when we have human beings enacting those old relationships of the most profound sustainability, I mean, I don't even like that word in that context, the most profound mad love affair with earth <laughs> is really what we're talking about. Um, and and not then not only earth, but but with cosmos. So earth has her destiny. She has a role to fulfill in our solar system and in the cosmos. And she's on her way to do that in, 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 in her unfolding. And I don't think she's going to let us get in her way of doing that. But we could be a tremendous ally and help to her in doing that. So for us to support these land back endeavors, I think right now is one very tangible, concrete way to, to help indigenous peoples. As for conceptualizing, it's very conceptualizing our cultures. Very interesting to hear those words read back to me right now. But it's, it's hard enough for us to hold on to the truth of our, I mean, I want to say ceremonial life, our spiritual life, but, but that is implying as though it was somehow separate from our day-to-day -day life, and it's not. To be, you know, the closest I can come is knowing what happened when I went into prayer and ceremony during my menstruation and really had visions unfold for me um, one after another about what I could do what a good direction would be, who, what people would be involved. Um, even the ceremonies we did for the human reunion ceremonies in Europe to address the witch hunts, that was all given to me. So it's, it's a collaborative and co-creative relationship with all the rest of the sacred hoop of life. And for those of us who are able to and can, I'm gonna extend that out to a spiritual community of helpers that have been surrounding the earth and have been collaborating with human beings and earth for, I don't, I don't think we can even say how long. The white buffalo calf woman, the blue corn mothers, I'm sure there are other entities in other parts of the world, but, but just to name those ones, you know, to come into that kind of deep collaboration is, is hard for us to come by in some ways in indigenous culture. We're really fighting to preserve that and so this also is a part of this question about co-opting culture, misusing of culture. So that's something that people may not realize is when there's all this, because it's very hard to make that jump. It's very hard to make that jump from intellect into the true meanings of indigenous ceremony. Very, very hard. And I know that at this time, modern world is really seeking that and really trying to do that. And one of the one of the ways I think they feel like is the easiest way to do that is through plant medicines, because that will definitely alter your consciousness in ways that that nothing else will, and that you can't explain. And there and things happen during that time. But honestly, I feel like those ways are like way advanced, way beyond most human beings on the planet at this time in order to really work with them in a way that is beneficial to life and to even your own self. Um, you know, in the Lakota way of prayer, we say we pray with our own juices, you know, so we're not, we're not involved in, in hallucinogenics. We, we come into vision through fasting generally, um, and prayer and song. Um, and, and to drop into that place is so precious. So 
So to for folks to come along and want to hop right in, just just notice. I'm not saying it should never happen. I'm probably more open than than many indigenous people you'll meet. But I do see that it's it's a little bit hard sometimes with this clamoring of people using these ways when they're coming out of intellect at the same time as we are desperately trying to hold on to what we hold, not only for ourselves, but for the balance of the whole planet, of the whole earth, um, for ourselves, so that we can keep that straight, so that we can have that relationship that is necessary for human beings to have with earth. Sometimes all of that extra stuff to navigate by people coming into our cultures and wanting to participate can can make it difficult. So it's just something to keep in mind as people keep asking me about about that question of co-opting culture. I don't again, I don't say never do it, don't want it, don't, you know, I I can't say that, but I can just point out some of the stuff that makes it difficult so that hopefully we can be aware and collaborate. Mhm. Thank you. Pat, I think that's really important for all who are listening to hear. And this has been such an incredible conversation. I'm so grateful for this time with you. And as we come to a close, I have one last thought. And that is that both prophecy and science have given us certain timelines for radical change when it comes to the habitability of the planet. And I think definitions of radical change might look very different depending upon who you are speaking to. You know, maybe not, but I've been thinking about this messaging lately and how daunting it can be that we may have only about five years to, quote, turn things around. So, you know, we kind of spoke about this a little earlier too, but To close our conversation, I'd like to ask you what radical change means for you in your day-to-day life? Well, what I'm noticing, and I think this is something that this quarantine has given everybody an opportunity, is to understand where do you get your food from? And what does that mean? And what happens when your food supply is chain is cut off and for that matter your toilet paper chain and (laughs) um so we've all hopefully had a good chance to think about that and 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 maybe go so far as to say that that getting a bigger storage house and storing more is probably not going to cut it um and so i'm i'm no exception so my my job i feel like legitimately has been to to voice some of these things like I'm sharing with you right now. And so I've been called on to do that in in all different parts of the world, at different gatherings. When lockdown happened in the United States, I was just coming from Israel, Jordan, and Palestine. I was gonna wash my clothes and maybe get some sleep and then take off for Australia and London and Ireland two weeks after I got home. And in those two weeks, everything came to a halt. So that was my lifestyle. And um, I had to think a lot about it, about my carbon footprint and et cetera, flying. And I, I kept hearing that, that I, I needed to do that. And I also needed to be a part of drawing, like drawing an energetic web onto the planet with the prayers 
that I was carrying um, as well. So that's how I, I guess we could say, justified that life. It has been really hard to just come to a screeching halt, as I, as I know it was for many, many of us. Um, and so I'm, I'm confronted with myself pretty deeply. You know, what was I, you know, a, a question really came up early on. What, what, were, what were you in it for, really? And, um, and so I've had to gain clarity about that again. And, and now, um, like I say, this land back piece is coming up. There's, there's a, 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 some folks who have land at the base of one of our four sacred mountains that is, is pretty much all private land at the base. So we haven't really had much access to that mountain for our own ceremonies and such. And now they want to sell it. And they, they really would like me and my family to be the keepers of it. And um, and they've always wanted Diné people to have access to the mountain. So that's like a pretty radical turn for me. Like I'm, I've been asking spirit lately, seriously. So now now it's time for me to be like a homesteader. You know, like I wish you'd brought this up when I was in my 30s, because now I'm coming up on 60, and um, it's not going to be that easy. And and the truth is, it's not going to be that easy for me to just, you know, put my head down and do it all myself, which is unfortunately a little bit of my mo uh but uh, but no so it's forcing me like if i'm really going to listen to that call which i have always to the best of my ability answered every single call that spirit has ever given to me but i'm standing in the front of this one going wow this is a big one to go live out in a very remote place and to begin to build community that is based on spiritual values and principles that I hold now and that I'm going to come in to learn from my own people. And again, to also be able to say, you know, um, you know, I don't, I don't want, uh, I don't think, I don't think it's necessary either, but I, I don't see the need for having tribal government involved with this endeavor, even though it is to benefit ultimately Diné people. Uh, so it'll probably be held as a private transaction. Um, but it's, it's radical. It's a totally different lifestyle, a totally different way of being. And I just feel like um, as, as hard as, as, as some days, it's, it's really like an overwhelming prospect and other days I'm very excited about it. Um, but, but I really feel like we, each one of us has to have an ear out for such a radical calling at this time. <laughs> Uh, because the life that we have been living cannot be lived much longer. Uh, it just cannot. And already, you know, as, as the Spirit said to me, by the time all of the, cha the, the chaos of the earth hits first world nations, it's going to be late, 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 late in the game. And so I feel like this is where we're at. We're seeing you know, a lot of our relatives have already been deeply overcome by all the changes and are already in that position of trying to understand what in the world to do. And, and some of them were maybe trying to prepare, but probably many of them were not. And so I was told, you know, to, to not necessarily go into this sense of shame and guilt that that wasn't going to serve, but to really ask myself, why am I in this position? So here I am, an indigenous woman who's who is not even supposed to be here. The plan was genocide. I was supposed to be exterminated, but, but my ancestors lived through that and I'm here and I'm living here in a first, so-called first world nation. And what does that mean? 
what what am I able to do from this place? Who am I able to be, as you say, and as I've been saying, to uphold the honor of being human being now? Um, and so this is the calling that's coming for me in conjunction with working with a lot of other people who are who are involved in similar endeavors. So I feel like we are looking for our place to create is as uh, one of my favorite authors back when I used to read pre pre-menopause. Um, I read uh, Joseph Chilton Pierce's um, The Biology of Transcendence, and he talks about, you know, maybe the goal isn't to, to try to create global change, but the goal maybe is to create lifeboats of coherence. And that if we create these lifeboats of coherence, um, that when structures fall, when chaos hits, that the new will begin to coalesce around these lifeboats of coherence. And so that's another um, teaching that I that I take forward into my life right now is, and I feel like whatever this calling is that the mountain, it's actually the mountain calling, is calling for a certain kind of lifeboat of coherence there. And I'm doing everything I know, including yesterday, crying my eyes out <laughs> to be, you know, I don't have to know how it's going to happen. I just have to be. I just have to not say no. That's what the spirits tell me. As long as you don't say no, we will see this through. It will happen. So I'm doing all in my power to be able to at least not say no and working very, very deeply on being able to say yes. Hmm. Thank you, Pat, for sharing that and everything that you have opened us up to in this conversation. And I'm really glad you're saying yes. And I feel confident for you and excited for the radical changes in your life and feeling very certain that they will inspire radical changes in others that get to come into connection with you. Wow, I'm really so moved by this conversation and I feel like I'm definitely going to spend the whole weekend just letting it sink in. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me and I'm really grateful to have this conversation. Um, there's uh, things that I've said today that I don't think I've ever said, so I find that very satisfying. Thank you for listening to For the Wild podcast. The music you heard today was by the Range of Light Wilderness, Violet Bell, and Sea Stars. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Erica Ekram, Francesca Glassbell, and Julia Jackson.